0: Hello, everyone. I'm Priest Willis, and this is Missions in Marketplace Podcast, episode number 37. Today, I'm joined by Jesse Jones. He's our first lawyer that we've had on the show. And I think it's timely that he's on as we go into the new year and we think about how we want to start our businesses, in what way we want to start them, how we want to incorporate our businesses. Jesse shares some very vital information and he knows what he's talking about. He's been in the space for a while. One of his focuses has been in the startup space specifically. He's worked in American Underground and Raleigh, Durham here and have worked with multiple, if not hundreds of different startups in his time. In 2006, he graduated magna cum laude with a bachelor's degree in exercise science from Eastern University, Philadelphia, PA. But then he made a detour and decided that he wanted to go to school for law and graduated in 2009 from Wake Forest University Law School. Jesse was then admitted to the North Carolina Bar and Delaware Bar. Jesse has been working with the law firm Force Firm here in Raleigh, North Carolina, as I talked about, which is my personal firm and why I thought it'd be good to have him on and speak with you. Jesse and his firm are well-grounded in the startup space, as I've said, and have a developing partnership with American Underground, a Google-supported co-working space that you've heard me talk about in the past. His areas of focus in specific are startup counseling, seed, venture capital, debt financing, mergers, acquisitions, and negotiation, and structuring of a wide range of contracts and transactions. I hope you get something out of it. I hope it really gives you the tools necessary to at least get started or at least to find you a lawyer to start preparing your business. Without further ado, here is my man, Jesse Jones.
1: Welcome to Missions and Marketplace Podcast. Join us as we talk to business and thought leaders to discuss their passions in and outside of business and how it drives them to give and be citizens of goodwill. Let's get started.
0: Hey, Jesse, welcome to the program. Thanks,
1: Priest. Thanks for inviting me on.
0: Yeah, happy to have you on. You are the first lawyer that we've had an opportunity to talk to. And I know that there have been entrepreneurs and small business owners and others that have wanted to hear from a lawyer and kind of glean from them a bit. So for all transparency, you're somebody that I worked on uh, for our own business contracting and you do amazing work. So I'm happy to have you on, man.
1: Thanks for saying that. Thanks for the kind words. I'll try not to uh, screw it up as the first lawyer on your program. (laughs) You'll you'll do good. I'm
0: sure of it. So why don't you uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So I have been practicing law for about eight years at this point. Uh, I'll kind of take you in in reverse order. I went to law school at Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I graduated from there in 2009. Uh, I went to went to college up outside of Philadelphia at a small school called Eastern University. You know, didn't. Didn't really start out with the idea of being a lawyer. My, uh, my undergrad degree is in exercise science and fitness and sports and, you know, nutrition, all that kind of stuff is still really interesting to me. But I kind of got to the point where I realized I was going to have to keep going to school. To be honest, you know, law school is, uh, well, it may not be easy to get into. There's not a whole lot of prerequisite requirements. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I was able to uh, do what I had to do in order to you know, get admitted. <laughs>
0: That's cool. So at some point you might be a sports lawyer then, right? Because you,
1: you oh yeah, who knows? Every kid that likes sports, but you know, isn't going to be, be a professional athlete, probably thinks about being an agent. And I, <laughs> I certainly did. But uh, I don't know, that hasn't happened yet.
0: <laughs> so you know, sharing with the audience, you know, I've worked with you on contracts for Affiliate Mission, and you've been extremely helpful, extremely knowledgeable. We've met, talked over coffee and some other stuff. So I wanted to be able to kind of open this up a little bit for our audience and share some of your experience. So knowing where you went to school, kind of your initial plans, the firm you work for today is called Forest Firms. Tell us how long you've been there and tell us what your main role is there as a lawyer.
1: Uh, So I have been with Forest Firm for just about a year and a half at this point. I spent six years before that in two big law firms. One up in Wilmington, Delaware. That's where I started my practice, and then one in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know what I've been doing for the last five years or so, five or six years, is primarily working with uh, startup companies, founders, entrepreneurs, and and the people and entities that invest in them. At this point, I've got quite a bit of experience working with those types of issues, uh, and then I fill in around the edges with general corporate work, which could be contract drafting, like some of the work that I've done for you, mergers and acquisitions, uh, or M&A is what you know, people in the business world call it. And then, you know, so, so that's where I spend most of my time. Our firm pretty much covers everything business-related in-house at this point. We don't do patent work. But other than that, we typically have our clients covered no matter what they're, what they're running into.
0: I think what's really cool and unique about you as a lawyer and just kind of getting your first initial exposure in in the business world is you literally have businesses all around you because you kind of planted yourself right in the middle of a kind of a co-meeting space, Google entrepreneurial based or backed business called American Underground and Raleigh Durham here. Talk about that experience of having so much exposure with startups there and just kind of your role and what your firm does and what you do directly with American Underground.
1: American Underground partnership has been great. We kicked that off in January of 2016 this year. So we've been, been at it for just about a, a whole year now. That sort of started out as a, a relationship that a couple different people in our, on our team had with different various people at the American Underground. And so what we're able to do is really kind of come in and provide you know some discounted services to American Underground tenants, which is you know great for the tenants because they're getting work that they need done uh, completed at you know a lower price point it's good for american underground because they get to sort of tout us as one of the benefits to being a tenant there and it's good for us because we get in front of people that we might not otherwise you know get to talk to that triple you know triple win whatever is awesome it's great and it really sort of stems from our firm is very different from the typical corporate law firm we're we're just about as flexible as we can be creative in terms of how we charge people, how we get things done. We try to be very upfront with all of our clients and, you know, so that they know how much things are going to cost and how long they're going to take. And we want to give, you know, our clients a a great experience. And so that American underground piece has been relatively easy to implement because we basically get to come in, spend time at the American underground. We do some teaching uh, series for their tenants. We, You know, we just work for them and we start to build a relationship. It's really sort of a long term relationship building project.
0: It's kind of a unique position from a law firm perspective, because you are right in the middle of it and getting a chance to see these businesses maturate, which is really cool. And one of the benefits is the startups having a lawyer right there. It's relatively easy to find a trusted lawyer Right in front of you because you guys are constantly in the, the location or, you know, mm-hmm. you'll go to Adam Klein, who is the chief strategist with American Underground and people say, how can I get connected with a good lawyer? And it's it's easy to find there. But if somebody isn't in an environment like that, you know, what are the steps that someone should take to find the right lawyer, I should say, for their business, the right one, sure. and a good one?
1: That's a good question. A lot of the people that I work with just because uh the type of work that I do, a lot of, a lot of the people that I work with have not worked with lawyers before. You know, my suggestion would be to sort of ask the people that you trust for some recommendations because I know around here in the triangle there are I don't know four or five other firms that do very similar work to what I do. Some of those lawyers are really good. The triangle anyway is is a pretty easy place as far as... Maybe it's because I'm in it, but it seems as though it's a pretty easy place to get some recommendations of, of some good lawyers.
0: Sure. Just but because of I, the startup I, environment and so many businesses mm-hmm. being creative, lawyers have found their way down here. That's that's right. Yeah. But finding a good and the right one is the, the key for sure.
1: It is. And there's no substitute for excellent work. I mean, the work product has got to be spot on because otherwise you're leaving yourself exposed and you're always kind of wondering if you're okay and that's not good. So the, you know, the work product is obviously very important. I think that the personality of, of anybody, not just a lawyer, but it's, if it's an accountant or any other service provider, anybody you're working with, is important because you want to enjoy as much as you can everything that you do. And if you're going to be talking to this person, it should be somebody that you can spend some time with. And then the other part of it, I think... Is and this is something that we really harp on with the forest firm. is really customer service. Like that, that is something that it's just totally forgotten in the typical corporate context, especially with lawyers and you know other service providers. Probably, if you're working with a lawyer who does excellent work and you'd love to spend time with, but you can't get a hold of them, he doesn't get back to you. He or she doesn't return your your emails or your phone calls for weeks. I mean, that that's just not okay. Right. And unfortunately, that is. Uh, that is not that uncommon, but it, it shouldn't be that way. And so I think if you're not getting the sense that someone is treating you the way that you would like to be treated or the way that you treat your customers, then it might be time to, to try to find somebody else. You don't have to give up on one of those things. I mean, you can find people who are very good at what they do, who treat people the right way and are easy to talk to. And, and that's, for me anyway, that's what I'm looking for when I hire somebody.
0: I have to say that you and I met towards downtown Raleigh here for coffee and I didn't feel like you punched a clock on me, right? There was kind of an intimacy within the conversation that you really were interested in my business. And I kind of was pouring out what I'm doing and, you know, what's going on from there. And we kind of synced up to work on some contractual stuff. So, you know, I must say your customer service is top notch. And I think for any lawyer This isn't the right terminology for lawyering, but the bedside manner is key, right? I mean, somebody, uh, somebody you can talk to, somebody that doesn't feel like they're in a rush to get over yours, because you know people are intimate about their business. They have questions, they have issues, and I think this kind of leads to you know how we as people that are looking for lawyers and finding the right lawyers, how we're effectively using our lawyer, right? We're just not calling them up. For every scenario. And, you know, what, you know, what are some key things that we probably could do as startup businesses, founders, you know, people along those lines that when we do find a good lawyer, that we're making sure we're making the best use of our time and having the best conversations
1: possible. That's a good question because, again, like I said before, I, I do work with a lot of people that don't have any experience working with lawyers. One of the things that can anger anyone, I guess, is getting a bill that they're not expecting to get. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, like, number one really is you need to understand how your lawyer charges you. And if you don't know, you need to ask them mm-hmm. because. They should know. If they don't, if they don't even know, then you've got a real problem. Um, <laughs> should <laughs> but, should you know, I be
0: able to ask my lawyer tell me your hourly wage up front, or how do I even start that initial conversation to, to understand the cost in the beginning?
1: Yes, that is a completely fair question. I mean, just like you would ask somebody who cuts your grass, what do you charge to cut a lawn this size? You should definitely be asking a lawyer, what's your hourly rate. Right. You know, that information should be in the engagement letter, but really before you even get to that point, you know, people ask me that all the time and I I think that's more than fair. But even really beyond that, you know, how flexible can your lawyer be?
0: Explain the engagement letter real quick, Jesse, for those yeah, sure. that don't know what that means.
1: As part of the bar uh, association, lawyers have certain requirements and one of those is that they have to have a document that basically outlines the relationship between the lawyer and the client, and that's very important, especially when you're talking about corporate lawyers and, and like business dealings, because ninety nine times out of a hundred, my client is the company that you founded, not you, mm-hmm. and that is a that is something that people need to understand because especially in situations where you've got more than one owner, it's important to explain that you know we are I am counsel to the company I'm not representing partner a or partner B I'm representing the company the engagement letter is something that you, any lawyer will ask you to sign before you know before you really get into it like I, I don't slide an engagement letter across the table the very first second I meet somebody but you know what, so we'll, we'll you know we'll talk we'll get yep. I get a sense of what they need they get a sense of who I am and if they need a, if they need, actually need me to do something then before I actually do anything for them, I'll have them sign the engagement letter. It's sort of beyond that hourly rate. And every lawyer has an hourly rate. And it is what it is. And it's never going to go away. But I don't personally love charging by the hour. And I don't think that clients particularly love it either. So we try to be very, very flexible in terms of, if I can kind of nail down exactly what you need me to do, and it's something I do all the time, I'm probably going to say, hey, why don't I just charge you X? Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you need. I, we don't have to mess around with an estimate or anything like that. Just, you know what it's going to cost. It'll get, you know, I'll have it for you in three days or whatever and then move on. That's important to ask. You know, if you don't like the thought of being charged by the hour, then ask your lawyer, hey, is this something you could do on a flat fee? A lot of lawyers will say no because, you know, the bigger firms, they just they just, they just don't have the flexibility. They just, they won't do it. It is the way it is. But, a lot of other lawyers will. I think the ones that sort of think beyond just the technical legal work tend to find better ways to do things. And, I, and you know, like I said, the, the hourly rate's never going to go away, but you should understand how you're getting charged. A couple other quick points on how to use your lawyer. Yep. Once you understand how you're getting charged, you should pay it on time. Pay the bill on time. And if you can't pay the bill on time, you should call your lawyer or service provider, or whoever you're really talking about. This kind of applies to more than just your lawyer. But if you can't pay it on time in full, let them know. You know, A lot of times, especially in, in my practice, I set up payment plans for people because I know what I'm doing is too expensive for them right now. Mm-hmm. I want to work with them anyway, but we'll figure out a way for them to pay it off over time or figure out some other arrangement. But you got to communicate about it. There are a couple of other things. Give your lawyer adequate time for thought. So don't call 10 minutes before you're supposed to sign an agreement with somebody and say... <laughs> hey, I just sent you this. Can you look at it and let me know if it's okay? I'm a person just like anybody else. <laughs> and I can't necessarily drop what I'm doing right this second. And even if I could, if I don't have adequate time to really think about it, I'm probably going to miss something. So putting people in awkward situations, it, it's not good for anybody. You know, Your bill might be lower, but the service you're getting and the quality of the work is probably going to suffer because there just wasn't adequate time. And then the last one is... Depending on how much time you have, you know, it depends on what you're hiring your lawyer for, right? I mean, some people hire them because they just don't have time to deal with the issue and they want somebody else to handle it. Some people do have time, but they don't appropriately give scope to the question. Mm. Or if you're one of those people that has some time to sort of put some thought into what you actually need, if you can narrow down the question to exactly what you need to know from the lawyer, that will undoubtedly result in, you know, a lower bill and less time to complete and you know a better experience. So that's basically it. I could probably go on about how to use lawyers effectively forever but move on from that.
0: Yeah, that's really good. And I think as entrepreneurs we need to be organized. So even for those ones that feel like they don't have the finances up front to get a lawyer and they want to set up their own LLC or whatever it is that you're setting up, make sure that you have your documentation and your other pieces in order. That way, as Jesse said, you can explain your business articulately. You can almost have not an elevator pitch, but something that they can digest so they can come back to you with a considerate explanation or assistance versus you just throwing up issues and situations at the last minute and expecting them to fight through it. I've found that a lot of people, a lot of businesses struggle with their lawyer because of that. And then to hurt it even more, as you're pointing out about the hourly wage, because as entrepreneurs, you feel like it's a black hole. You're like, yeah, they're charging me for five, but I know he did it within two. Well, if you can articulate what your situation is better and you allow a little bit more time, you do the engagement letter, you have the initial consultation, it'll help the process along better. And as Jesse pointed out, you'll be able to kind of find out sooner if you can go with a flat payment, if it makes sense, because after all your explanation, you only found out that you needed a tighter contract or whatever the case is. So that's really good stuff on how to use your lawyer. Being that you've worked with so many different startups, Jesse, and you kind of understand the landscape of what has hurt some and using your experience of people coming to you late, what have been those challenges or missteps that you've seen other businesses take? Whether it's you know first setting up their business or what have they done within their business and then ultimately come to you, what are just a couple of those missteps you've seen?
1: There's a lot probably that I could talk about, but there's one thing in particular that is always a disaster. And unfortunately, it is more common than I would have thought it would be, but it, it just it is what it is. Mm. I have seen many, many people who have a business partner, and it could be a spouse, it could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be somebody they've done work with before. I have seen them set up the company and just, it's easy, and just say, you know what, we're 50-50. Mm. We're 50-50 owners. You know, that does bring some challenges when you say you're going to be 50 50, but I understand, like, there are definitely times where that is what it should be. But the trick is if you are 50 50 owners, you have got to set up some type of rule for how to break a tie. And I have seen that. I'm dealing with more than one of those issues right now where business was going great for a year, five years, 10 years, whatever. But at some point, you come to a point of contention and there is nothing available to hang your hat on. Mm. It's, it's 50-50 or 50-50. You can't break the tie. Nobody has a majority. Nobody has control. There's no preset rule for what to do if we just disagree on what we should do. And that is, that is just a disaster. I mean, you're just, you're waiting for somebody to get sued and the company to basically suffer because the leadership doesn't have a way out.
0: So you think even when you're setting up a business, you still should have something written somewhere that here's the hierarchy within our business. So yes, we have kind of a a partnership or LLP, I guess you would call it. Here's how that partnership is set up or how it's paid out. And you would break it out by percentages,
1: maybe? The easiest way to avoid it is just don't be 50-50, right? <laughs> I mean, just, just be 51-49 or whatever. That's right. But I understand that you, sometimes you just can't get to that point. And there are a bunch of different ways to deal with it. I mean, you could have sort of a deadlock provision where after 10 days of you know good faith negotiation, somebody has the right to buy somebody else out at a certain price. I mean, one of my favorite ways to deal with it, uh, some people call it a shotgun provision, for me, I have four kids. And whenever they're fighting over something, usually to eat, I'll, you know, I'll, take, I'll, I'll hand my you know, oldest son a knife and I say, you cut it in half, she picks which side. That's the concept of this shotgun provision where you've got... Anybody can sort of start the process. But basically, if Priest, if you and I were partners 50-50, I could say, all right, you know what? A million dollars. You're going to buy it from me or I'm going to sell it to you. What do you want? I'm saying it's a million dollars. Do you want to pay it or do you want me to buy it from you? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a great option, right? But there's really no great options when you're in that type of position. right? And something like that is infinitely better than nothing.
0: That's a really good point. Because you know, if there's one thing we hear about, it's a lot of times businesses are failing, not necessarily because the business itself or the widget that you're selling doesn't sell. It's because there's some internal implosion between the partners or... You know, friends or family starting businesses together and it gets really nasty. So I think you bring up a good point that maybe you have some of those tough conversations at the beginning so you're not exactly. having them at the end when it can get really ugly.
1: It doesn't get easier. It, you know, it's it, the easiest time to figure all that stuff out is right now.
0: I was going to ask, you know, two of the most important legal steps someone should take when they're starting a business. I'm going to go with that as one of them, certainly, kind of having tough conversations at the beginning if you're setting up Mm -hmm. with partners. But what would you say is another that you know if I'm setting up and I'm starting a new business, what is one of the most important legal steps I need to take?
1: There's a lot of talk and there's a lot of strategy that can go behind selecting which type of entity to use, whether it's going to be a corporation or a limited liability company or whatever. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I would say one of the most important steps you can take is just set up an entity, something. Because even if it's not the right choice, it's better than doing it as a sole proprietor. You know, I I have people ask me that all the time. Well, can I just, you know, do a business as name, you know, certificate? And yeah, you can, but what happens if you get sued? Well, if you're a sole proprietor and you get sued, they're suing you for your house and for your car and the money that's in your personal bank account. You know, one of the main advantages of setting up an entity is building a liability wall. If I've got my landscaping business and I'm doing it through an LLC and somebody gets hurt because, you know, one of my guys left a rake out on the yard or something, they're suing my company, right? They can go after the assets of my company, my company's bank account, my trucks, my equipment, whatever other assets I have, but they're not coming after my house. They're Mm -hmm. not coming after my bank account, my personal bank account. So that is sort of a no-brainer to me. I mean, it's, it's so easy now to set up an entity. Everybody should do that if you're operating a business. And then very closely linked to that is once you've got that entity set up, you need to have a separate bank account. You've got to separate the company's funds from your personal funds. That is probably the biggest way that uh, that people get screwed up, even when they do have an entity. If they commingle everything together, then the court in a suit is more likely to look at it all and say, "You know what?
0: You're a sole proprietor almost."
1: Exactly right.
0: So this seems like a a common sense question, but what's common to one person isn't common to everyone. And you know, I'm guilty of this because my question is. First of all, why can't you afford to kind of cut corners on, you know, privacy policy terms and conditions? So I wrote a contract initially by myself using terminology that I kind of read out online that I thought would pertain to my business, but I realized how much I missed within that contract and it sort of came back to bit me in particular ways. So having specific terms and conditions and privacy policies are important But maybe kind of tell us, Jesse, as business owners, why really should we have a lawyer take a peek at some of this stuff versus us just going on our own?
1: You know, a lot of people get annoyed with lawyers for using what they call legalese. Mm -hmm. And I personally try not to use that unless it's absolutely necessary. But what I've learned from doing this for the last eight years or so is that sometimes it actually is necessary because the language is very, very precise. And if you're trying to describe something in a way that is not going to be ambiguous, you have to be precise. You know, there's a couple different questions in what you just asked. I mean, the the privacy part, if you've got an online business and you're collecting people's names and email addresses and credit card information and any other kind of personal, whatever, physical address, phone number, all that kind of stuff you have got to let them know what you're doing with that. And sometimes you're doing nothing with it, but you need to tell them, typically the way I, I have my clients set it up is, if you're not doing anything with it, that's fine. You want to make sure that you give yourself the opportunity to do something with it in the future. You know, you're not going to be able to collect all these people's information that come to your website for five years and then tell all of them, oh, I know I said I wasn't doing anything with it, but now I am. But what you can do is sort of change things from a point in time going forward. And you never know really what's going to come up. I mean, a lot of people have businesses and the real value in the business is the information that's derived from their customers, not the stuff that they're selling. And so it's really important to have a privacy policy that gives you some of that flexibility, even if you're not planning to do anything with you know, whatever information that you collect now. The other thing is, depending on what type of industry you're in, you know, certain types of information it's regulated. There's rules about what you can and cannot do with certain info. And so you have to make sure that you're complying with that kind of stuff. So that's one sort of question. The other question is about sort of the, the general terms and conditions of website use or your product or your service, whatever mm-hmm. whatever you're selling. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes back, it's almost the same concept that we were talking about with the, you know, the 50-50 ownership with a partner where you don't have any documentation about what happens if there's a argument. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to make sure that you get the rules set before you get into a relationship with your customer. If your terms and conditions don't adequately protect you, you know, let's just say, you know, you're selling clothing online, right? If you don't have any return policy at all, mm-hmm. Well, then what happens when somebody calls you and says, hey, this, is, this isn't the size I ordered, or this color's wrong, or this shirt's ripped, or whatever? You, know? you want to make sure that you sort of preset those rules in the terms and conditions that you make available to people. They probably don't ever read them, to be honest. But mm-hmm. you need to be able to point back to something and say, this is what we do. We, we take all free refunds, but you have to pay to ship it back. Or we pay for shipping both ways. Just send it back if you don't like it. You know, Whatever whatever the case may be, that's kind of a business decision. You need to let people know how it works.
0: Yeah, that's good stuff. Really good points. I think that even though the customer or someone else may not read some of the legalese, as you pointed out, within your contract or whatever you may have, the protection is for you so that you can point back to say, hey, we did put it in there. You can't have ignorance of the law in this case, I guess, if that's one way to put it. You know, what happens if someone either copies content from your website or just copy, you know, any kind of proprietary content that you have in general? How do you protect yourself? What should someone do in that
1: case? It depends on a couple of different factors. I mean, one, if it's something that's patentable and you have a patent on it, well, then you have a pretty clear way to, you know, to stop people. You basically have this this time limited monopoly on whatever the idea is that you patented, and if people are you know violating the, those rights, then you have a pretty clear path forward. But a lot of stuff is not patentable, and if you know it's not worth patenting, and it, maybe it's not you couldn't get a patent even if you tried. That kind of stuff, to be completely honest, for me, it's typically a practical cost benefit kind of analysis. You know, yes. This person obviously copied something from my website. Is it harming me? Yes or no. Well, if it's not harming you, then is it really worth spending your time and money trying to get them to stop? Maybe not. It just, it kind of depends on you. If it is harming you, then, well, how is it harming you? How much is it costing you? And really, how much are you willing to sort of put into making it stop? A typical response, let's say somebody is you know using something that you've trademarked. Okay? So maybe it's a logo, maybe it's it's a slogan, maybe it's the name of your company, and somebody is out there using your mark to sell their products which are similar to what you sell. Typically the first response, which is relatively cheap and probably worth it, mm-hmm. is to send them what's called a cease and desist letter. And that could be used if it's, you know, if they've literally just wholesale copied something you wrote and stuck it on their own website. Or if it's more of this, like, you know, they're, they're sort of using the marks that you use to identify your own products and services. But that's typically relatively cheap to have a lawyer kind of draw up a letter for you. It's probably something you could do once and keep on file and just use again and again as you need to. But, you know, the question is, well, what do you do if they just ignore it? And then I think you, you kind of jump back into that cost-benefit analysis. On is it worth you
0: paying to, to fight it, again. basically?
1: Exactly. Right. And sometimes it is worth it and sometimes it's not. You know, that's a discussion to have based on the circumstances at the time with your lawyer and whatever other advisors you, you use.
0: That's a good point. And again, you definitely want to talk to your lawyer, whoever you decide to pick. That's why earlier when we talked about finding the right lawyer and a good one, a good right lawyer will tell you if it makes sense financially, especially depending on where your business is at, to fight certain cases. And sometimes you don't want to be trying to get legal, I guess, if that's the term, just for the sense of getting legal. You know, you want to pick your battles that you want to fight on. And that's what I've done as a business owner, essentially. As we're wrapping up here, Jesse, you know, I know we've talked about this in the past. This isn't an area necessarily that you're wholeheartedly in, but because of your exposure with startups and their initial beginnings and understanding some background to public domain and licensing a bit, Can we just touch really very superficially on or a crash course, if you will, on fair use of public domain content licenses, just your understanding of it? Can you give us kind of a brief summary of what that means to me as a a small business owner?
1: Let me start off by just kind of saying that this is really no matter which way you slice it and how you look at it, there's always going to be a pretty substantial amount of gray Mm -hmm. and a lot of that comes down to risk analysis. So, sort of the same, you know, from the opposite side, but the same analysis that you're going through to decide on whether or not it's worth trying to protect your brand or protect your content. That's the same analysis you need to sort of go through if you're trying to decide how much of somebody else's content to use. I mean, there's obvious things like you can't be, you know, photocopying copies of harry potter and selling them on the corner Mm -hmm. obviously that's going to get you in trouble but then there's sort of the opposite in the spectrum where as long as you're not doing it for monetary gain typically you are permitted to use things like songs excerpts from books or other writings stuff like that you know the example would be you know you're in school you're in 11th grade English, and your teacher is you know, using some excerpt from Harry Potter to teach you about character development. That's going to be okay, generally. The problem is that nobody's doing either of those things. No legitimate business person is just copying wholesale stuff and selling it on the corner mm-hmm. and No legitimate business person is just giving everything away or trying to teach people without, you know, receiving some kind of payment for it. Right. Where you end up with is a lot of gray. I mean, the the safest thing to do is either don't use anybody else's stuff or get Explicit permission to use exactly what you're using for the purpose you're using it, so that you know starts to narrow down the spectrum a little bit. And then, but you still are going to end up with this kind of, do I really want to ask? Because if they say no, then I really can't. But if I just do it, you know, it's sort of the do I ask for permission or forgiveness type thing. Mm-hmm. That is again a very fact specific that you would need to go through with your you know your business advisors and your your legal advisors at the time. One area that that I've run into this issue or a similar issue a lot is in venture financing deals, you know, specifically with tech companies that have proprietary software. Typically the investor wants to know that the software is not based on A particular type of open source license, which Mm -hmm. is called a hereditary license. There are other names for it. But there's multiple types of open source licenses, but there's two broad categories. One, the license says, this is an open source software product. Feel free to use it and change it and do whatever you want with it. The other one says, this is an open source license product. Feel free to do with it, change it, use it however you want to. And if you use it in your product, your product is also subject to the same license. And that second one, that hereditary license, is what investors really don't like because Mm -hmm. we don't, I mean, I I don't think we really know whether or not that's actually enforceable, but it sure doesn't look good. And if, you know, an investor's putting in millions of dollars to invest in your software, they don't even want to have the potential. Exactly. Exactly. They don't want the possibility that what they just invested in is actually forced to be just given to everybody for free. Right. That's sort of my exposure to that part of this discussion. There's a lot of other stuff out there to talk about, for sure.
0: There is, and there's a lot of ways you can go with it. So for people that are on one aspect creating, you know, that's that's one side that Jesse focuses on. If you're looking at it from content perspective on YouTube, the safest way is to always look at what does YouTube say in their terms and conditions. Granted, you may not want to read it as Jesse and I both pointed out and you and I both know as the listener that sometimes we just click the I agree button. But if you're going to delve into stuff like that, Make sure that one, you either have a good lawyer on your side or two, that you're reading the terms and conditions on whatever platform you're on because we're not able to answer every question here. But I think what this does do, Jesse, is kind of get people jump started. And understanding that, look, sometimes you feel like lawyers can be somewhat of a cost strain and that's no offense to Jesse or or anything else. I'm telling you, it's helpful. It helped me out with my contract. You can only go so far if you want to grow your business and if you want to do it the right way. And I think what this was meant to do was to get you engaged properly with the lawyer and to understand what you should be looking for. So, Jesse, you've been extremely helpful here. If people just want to connect with you, whether it's on Twitter or wherever it may be, how can people reach out, connect to you, share whatever you like.
1: So my I'm on Twitter uh, at J Jones J D. You know, you can also reach me via email, Jesse J-E-S-S-E at forestfirm.com, or you can check out our website at ForestFirm.com
0: Com. Jesse, you've been amazing, man. I really appreciate your time again. Um, you've been helpful. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. I look forward to doing this again. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to Missions and Marketplace. If you have a brand or business that you want to take online, or you're already online and looking for more exposure, visit us at AffiliateMission.com, the premier affiliate marketing so and management agency. Also, feel free to get social with us and check our Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. And share with us your story on how you're leaving a mark in the world.
0: I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable, and I'm just ferocious. (laughs)